Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. The pain that Annie Karp felt in her hip wasn't intense, but it was unrelenting. For months, she met with numerous healthcare providers in an attempt to resolve the issue. And for months, she had no success. Until a physical therapist asked her a fairly simple question, are you a dancer? That question ultimately led to an accurate diagnosis of Annie's problem, hip impingement. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, we'll go through Annie's experience, which included surgery and ongoing physical therapy. But as Annie's surgeon shares, surgery isn't always necessary to treat hip impingement. Here now with the whole story is Annie Karp, her surgeon, Dr. Andrew Wolf, and her physical therapist, Paris Satarzadeh Moghadam. Annie, I want to start with your story. It was recently featured in the Washington Post Medical Mystery Series. And the turning point of the story, which is a long one, is when a physical therapist asks you a, a basic question, which is, are you a dancer? Um, can you sort of summarize for me, in this story of you and hip impingement, everything that kind of led up to that very simple question? Sure. I had pain that started um, in February of 2016 and saw multiple doctors, multiple orthopedists, and everyone stated that my hips were fine. They would just do just a basic look over, have me walk, have me bend, and found no problems. I basically went through kind of peaks and valleys where I would try to find a medical practitioner, something that I hadn't a doctor that I hadn't seen before that, a general practitioner, um, chiropractor, dry needling, things like that. Um, And then finally, in the summer of last year, I sort of gave up um, and took a break because I had seen so many doctors that said that there was nothing wrong. So in the fall, I decided to revisit going to back to doctors because the pain had not gotten any better um, and seemed like it was getting almost increasingly worse um, or my tolerance for the pain was getting worse. And I visited yet another um, orthopedist who sort of brushed me off yet again and recommended that if the topical cream they had given me wasn't better, then maybe we could do a cortisone shot. And at that point, I was just grasping at straws. I was trying to have anything that would help the pain. I went in that day for a cortisone shot, and there was a paperwork snafu, and they actually kind of shuffled me off to their physical therapy department that was attached to the orthopedist office. And in doing sort of an intro evaluation with that physical therapist, probably five minutes in, I was explaining the pain, and she sort of interrupted me and asked me if I was a dancer. And once I said yes, she immediately said, I know exactly what's wrong with you, or I think I know exactly what's wrong with you, and our doctors can't help, and gave me Dr. Wolf's information. 
So I want to pick up with that part of the story later, but first I want to go back. You're, you're going in and you're seeing multiple healthcare professionals over and over and over again trying to solve this, and they're all basically saying there's nothing wrong, essentially. I mean, that, that's the underlying thing. And yet there is something wrong because you're in all this pain. So mm-hmm. how debilitating was the pain? What, what effect was this having in your day-to-day life? It was a. It got to the point where it was. I would just ignore it. But um, the pain, I would say, at its most, was kind of a five or six on a, a ten point scale. It was something where when I would get out of the car after a car ride, even if it was like a thirty minute car ride, it would take me a while for my hips to sort of adjust. I'd walk like a little old lady for a few minutes. Certain movements, um, bending down, squatting. Um, sitting on the floor and then trying to get back up, I felt, you know, caused additional pain. And then just touching my hip bones was pain. Pain would radiate. And that was kind of a constant that was there. And as the months went on, I just kind of tried to ignore it because, you know, I I felt like I had gone to so many doctors that said there's nothing wrong. And so maybe it's in my mind at that point. Well, yeah, and so that was the next question I was going to ask. You know, you're saying most of the time the pain's a five and a six, which, relatively speaking, is tolerable, except it's sort of always there. You're making all these efforts to try and solve it, and basically people are telling you, you know, hey, there's there's really nothing here to be solved. What's the impact of that? What's the impact of, of seeing so many healthcare professionals and basically not getting a solution to this problem? How was that for you emotionally? You know, what did that what did that do on top of that five or six pain you're feeling in your hip? It was really stressful. I actually developed last spring shingles, um, which at my age typically isn't common. Um, and when I had visited my internist who did a full blood work panel, my cortisol level was very high. And so it was obviously a stress for me. And you know, it was it was emotionally draining. No one wanted to hear, you know, that I was in constant pain. Um, I didn't want to be complaining around my family all the time. I didn't want to be, you know, to quote Debbie Downer all the time. And so I just sort of tried to not think about it and just move on with my life. And um, I got to the point where I thought that this might just be the new normal for me. So right, so now we're we're back in the physical therapist's office, and and that that question, are you would answer, and you say yes, and I mean, in this moment, after everything you've gone through, are you thinking this is the, this is sort of the light bulb moment, and this could lead to something, or were you pretty skeptical at that point? I was really excited. It was the light bulb moment for me. I was trying hard to like not be, you know, she had to finish her whole evaluation, and all I really wanted to do was get the heck out of there and like call. Dr. Wolf make an appointment, um, but it was the first person that justified that there could be something wrong. Every other doctor was like, there's nothing wrong with you. And so, you know, that glimmer of hope um, was something that I was really, it was the first time I had seen that in like almost 10 months. And did she say to you at that time, hip impingement, is it, and had that been discussed before? I think she did. I mean, she said, you know, I remember like hearing CAM and FAI and, you know, a bunch of acronyms that I didn't understand at that point. And I um, didn't really remember from that conversation because I think all that was going through my mind was, oh, my gosh, someone like has recognized that I'm in pain. And so it wasn't even that I was able to Google anything or really do anything until after I saw Dr. Wolf and we 
had that initial x-ray that confirmed everything. So, Dr. Wolf, then that, that brings us to you. Uh, we're talking about hip impingement, and so let's make sure our listeners understand what that is. What are we talking about when we talk about hip impingement? So, basically, the hip, as uh, as you guys know, is fundamentally sort of like a ball and socket joint, and hip impingement is when those the components of that, the ball or the socket or both, aren't quite a perfect match. So, uh, like in Annie's case, what we had was mostly a, a problem on the ball side where it wasn't quite round. Um, and so when you have that, it puts you at risk when the ball moves through the socket and there's a little bit of a mismatch. It puts extra pressure at the rim of the socket, and then that can lead to breakdown there, which then can lead to pain. So you can get labral tears, and we actually know that it's a pretty significant risk factor for getting uh, wear and tear in the joint and arthritis. Um, and so that's fundamentally what it is. There's, you can also have impingement from the socket side where it's overcovering and causing a problem that way. But the more, it's a little bit more common to have the, the cam type impingement, which is from the ball side or the femur side. Um, and that's, and that's basically what she had, which is just a risk factor for getting these sort of downstream problems, which are, you know, labral tears and, and then ultimately arthritis and the, the uh and those things obviously can hurt and um the hip pain associated with that stuff is is sort of it's tricky and it does sort of move around a lot and you know i think when you see somebody like annie who's who's gone through so much with with this stuff and it's sort of you know the pain's there it's real it does it does sometimes move around and so sometimes people it is sort of a little bit of a head scratcher for people but that's that's basically the fundamentally what it is and once in the way we diagnose that is you know listening to people's stories trying to figure out all right could this possibly be a hip problem looking at them from a uh, motion standpoint because there's sort of characteristic motion issues that we'll see even in people who are relatively flexible like dancers are you know you have to be pretty flexible but even some dancers just won't, they won't move in certain directions because the ball and socket of the hip won't let them. And it's not because they're not working hard or, or whatever. And so it is a pretty hard activity on your hips, particularly if you have this type of impingement. That diagnosis part of is interesting, and, and it makes me think when you listen to the symptoms that Annie had, the, the five or six level pain and sort of difficulty uh, kind of getting up and, and getting down and things of that nature and, and sort of sometimes difficulty moving after she's been in the car, things like that, but more or less still able to function through her life. Is that typical of someone with hip impingement? And then, and then related to that, is it typical to go through what she did where it takes so long to figure out what the problem is? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that it's not it's not super atypical for actually most of these hip impingement when they become symptomatic. It's usually not. It's probably ninety percent of the time it's a it's a insidious onset, meaning that it just shows one day you didn't have it, the next day you did, and you say, "What did I What did I do?" And then it sort of gets worse and it persists and it sort of moves around. And sometimes it's on the front of your hip, sometimes it's on the back, sometimes it's on the side. Some days you're fine, other days it hurts all the time, and then. Gradually, what we what we typically will see is that it gradually sort of gets worse, and you'll start having more pain with less and less activity. So initially, particularly like in an athletic population, we'll see it when you know if you're a lacrosse player, one day it hurts after practice or something, and then 
all of a sudden you're getting to the point where it's hurting all the time, like where, when you're just sitting down and doing daily living stuff. But actually it's more, it's far more common to have it just show up, uh, and have it and then just have it gradually progress than it is to like, oh, I can point to one day I did one thing and, uh, and that was what caused me to have my labral tear and pain, uh, which the impingement had set me up for. Um, and so her story's not totally atypical. And then with regards to, you know, having, having a hard time pinning down what it is, over the last decade we've, we've learned so much about the hip, but I think that the, the, the knowledge isn't totally widespread. And so, you know, I would say given that this is all I do is, 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 is treat young people with these problems, I don't, you know, when I see somebody like Annie, it's very, very much a, pretty obvious thing to me but then again this is all i do so uh but i think more it's getting better and better recognized in the, among medical professionals and and to annie and annie's point her therapist was like all right I, i've seen this before i know what this is and, and and that's a really great pickup uh but i would say that you know there's a lot of times where it just it is hard to sort of pin down because they sort of say well maybe it's your back maybe it's this maybe it's that maybe it's a you know, a groin strain or a hamstring strain or something, and, and let's try therapy, let's try rest, let's try this and that and the other thing. And, but I think that people are getting a better sense that uh, of, of how to sort of track these things down and, and, and then what to do about them once, we're, once we've tracked down what it is. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the turning point for Annie was that question, are you a dancer? And, and was that in, in a way uh, – Sort of, even though it was obviously a crucial question, was that a telling question? In other words, um, are dancers more likely to have have hip impingement? Who's who's the population that's maybe more likely to have these kinds of injuries? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So, I mean, it's actually sort of a chicken and egg question, um, and it's really interesting. So, we'll see a lot of dancers. They are very, very. It's a very high hip demand sport, right? They're getting into very extreme positions with their hips all the time, and um, if they have some underlying impingement, they're really at a setup for having problems. So if you think about the ball and socket bone being being an issue, not quite fitting together well, and then if you think about the other things that are the restraints for that being sort of loose, meaning that you know dancers are generally flexible and they have to get to those positions all the time, you're really putting a lot of stress across that joint, and and so. It's very common for dancers to have hip problems, particularly if they have underlying impingement. Now, the interesting thing about impingement is that we're finding that there's actually a greater prevalence in athletic populations than there are in sedentary populations, meaning that, you know, comparing age match people who are sort of done, who are, who have finished growing with people who did, you know, basketball seven days a week, compared to their peers who did, you know, Xbox seven days a week, you're going to see a lot more cam-type impingement in the in the basketball population. And the current thinking is that that's probably because the growth plate in, in the ball of the femur while you're growing will sort of overgrow in response to various stresses. And so we'll see very characteristic hip morphology or shapes in for instance, hockey goalies all have one shape of their hip, and dancers have characteristically a slightly different morphology. And you know, lacrosse, uh, football, 
regular ice hockey players will will have slightly different. I mean, and there's variability, I think, for sure, in all of those sports, but it's clear that the hip does respond to repetitive stress when you're a teenager. And so, and, and the way it develops is sort of based on that. It's also based on genetics and it's based on luck. And there's probably some, there's probably a hormonal aspect that exists as well that clearly we have not defined all of the factors. But one of the factors is the person's sport when they're developing. And so once you have that shape, then compounding it by persistent dancing is is putting yourself uh you're putting yourself at, at some at some risk for sure um, of having these uh these hip issues so when you've got this ball and socket problem basically you've got this hip impingement um first of all is surgery always necessary and then or or can it be managed for example with physical therapy without surgery but then um if if surgery is required what does the surgery entail it definitely does not need surgery all the time, and actually most of the time it doesn't. And and so when you see the impingement, the way that I try to explain it to people is that this is a risk factor in the same way that, you know, if you have high blood pressure, your chances of having a stroke or a heart attack are increased, but, but most people with high blood pressure don't have strokes or heart attacks. And so in the same way, there's there's a ton of people with impingement who are either athletes or non-athletes or somewhere in between who don't ever have a problem. They'll get an x-ray when they're 80 and they'll say, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't have never had one day of hip pain in my life. And then you look at their x-ray and they have terrible impingement and you say, well, how did that person get through? And whereas some of these other people who are, you know, 22 who I'll see in the office and they already have some arthritis because of their impingement. We, there's clearly things that we just don't understand. And so I think you have to approach these things uh, with some humility and say, we're going to really treat what's in front of us in terms of fixing the patient and their and their problems with their with the symptoms they're having and with their pain and their limitations and addressing those things. And so the way that I like to approach it is sort of in a in a stepwise fashion where you sort of say, all right, well, starting to have a little bit of pain. Well, let's rest and let's do maybe do some anti-inflammatories or some ice. Then let's work with therapy on this to see if we can correct any uh, flexibility or muscle imbalances. Typically a lot of, you know, sometimes we'll see people's, their their glutes just aren't activating or firing or they're not firing in the right patterns. And once we correct that, they do better or we correct their posture. And so they're functionally in a better, safer place for their for their sport so their hip doesn't bother them. And if we're able to get them through uh, without doing something more aggressive, then absolutely we're very safe to do that and, and sort of say, all right, well, yeah, you have impingement, maybe you have a labral tear. That's okay. If we can get you to be one of those people who manages it without having to go under the knife, we're going to do that. The flip side is is that we do know that some people with really terrible CAM-type impingement, particularly we'll get arthritis at a really high rate. And so we want to be a little bit more aggressive about treating those people surgically um, or at least watching them very, very closely to make sure that they're not, that they're not sort of minimizing their symptoms because we don't want to see them, you know, in three or five years and them at that point have too much arthritis. And then we're talking about, you know, having to have a hip replacement or something like that. But in general, we're, we're managing these problems based on, 
what are the symptoms and limitations of that person in front of us and how do we get from point A to point B with sort of the least intervention possible. We want to put people at low risk and we want to uh, intervene as little as possible because, uh, you know, I think that's just the, that's just the smart and conservative way to do it. And, uh, uh, and so I think that's the best approach. So Paris, let me bring you in now. And, and when we're talking about a physical therapy for hip impingement, for my first basic question is, are you looking at the same things or, or approaching a patient the same way, whether they've had surgery or haven't, or, or is it a pretty different approach depending on if they've actually had surgery? Um, completely different. If they come um, to PT with diagnosis of hip pain, one of the things we normally look at is um, definitely range of motion and also um, muscle strength um, versus, um, I wouldn't call it weakness, sometimes it's just some muscles are inhibited. What I found also is um, to look at their alignment helps a lot because sometimes as a result of the muscle imbalance, there is a dysfunction in the pelvis area, a side joint, and by correcting um, the alignment and addressing the muscle inhibition and um, hip range of motion, you can restore um, their function if the impingement is not significant. Um, and then I also sometimes have seen patients that come in with kind of in the same lines that Dr. Wolf was mentioning. Sometimes their pain, their pain is in their groin, sometimes in the back, in the glutes area. Um, and then once you start correcting and you see things don't settle down, it's time to basically refer patients back to, um, or sometimes I normally just send to Dr. Wolf if I think that there could be um, an impingement just because what I've found is if it doesn't settle down, then it's not responding well to physical therapy. Um, so that's that approach. But once patients come to PT post-op, it's a completely different picture. They're normally in um, a week or so after surgery, um, ambulation, and walking is using um, bilateral axillary crutches, and they have that post-op pain and inflammation, um, clearly some of the um, very easy functional activities um, are limited the first couple of weeks. So you still look at their range of motion, you still look at their um, muscle strength and inhibition, but your main focus at the beginning for that is different. Um, I don't worry about their alignment that moment. Let me go back and, and sort of take this in a different hypothetical way. Um, let's say early on, you know, at the very outset of this, um, back in February 2016 when Annie was first seeing some of her symptoms, she'd, she'd come to see you, Paris. Uh, you mentioned things like muscle strengthening and things like this to try and address it sort of non-surgically early on and, and see if that helps. Give me an example uh, of what what Annie might have gone through in February 2016 if you guys had started working on that then. What What sort of exercises or things would you put her through? So every patient is different. That's why we measure everything and basically um, write a, an individualized plan of care for that particular patient. Let's say if Annie would come and have some range of motion limitation um, and some um, muscular inhibition, part of her exercises would be to stretch the tight muscles and strengthen, for example, let's say her performance, her glutes, and then definitely with all my patients, and there is a component of manual therapy. 
So what I do every single session, look at their alignment, look at their range of motion, and then if there is anything I can do by muscle energy, I use very gentle techniques, um, do muscle energy or strength counter strain to calm some soft tissue down so they can tolerate better and um, see if their muscles can hold up their alignment and get rid of the pain. That would be a start for me. I never start every single thing with the patient on the first session because then you're adding too many variables. And if you're not getting results or they end up too sore or with more pain, you don't know which one was it. I try to start at least with some manual therapy, some gentle stretches, and then add the next component next session and just build up on that plan of care. And then in the case of, you know, Annie in real life, uh, when you when you started working with her um, post-surgery, what, what was the approach there? The approach the first couple of weeks, first of all, um, I'm, I, I've treated Dr. Wolf's patients in the past. Having said that, the first couple of weeks, um, patients are normally in, you know, their regular post-op um, pain and inflammation. They're not able to walk without crutches and um, their daily activities are limited. So my, my focus is to decrease their pain, um, and basically, um, definitely on the first session, you do some measurements of their range of motion. You look at their gait, look at bed mobility, transfers you know, from chair to standing and back, and um, basically their level of pain and comfort, um, and start working on decreasing pain. And, Starting, you start working on their range of motion right away. The key is you never want to basically, it's not one of those recoveries that there is no pain, no gain. You really have to have an ongoing communication with patients throughout the manual therapy and throughout the session to make sure patient is not experiencing any pinching during the therapy. Or sometimes, you know, patients think they, they should just do it, and um, they all, they sometimes even tell you, you know, they say no pain, no gain, but this is not that kind of recovery. So I always look for their facial expressions, always make sure they are not experiencing, you know, any pinching or pain. Um, so basically the first couple of weeks is that, to decrease their post-op pain, improve some of the range of motion. Um, and then and try to help them improve their walking, which is their gait pattern. So they're with two crutches, basically giving them some weight-bearing exercises to start getting rid of at least one of the crutches, and then slowly, slowly getting rid of that during the next phase. So every patient is different. You always look at how they are responding. You take, you know, you take it to the next step, or you decide to stay at the same level for a couple of sessions. In Annie's case, actually, when she presented, because she had done, she had tried to do a ton of strengthening before surgery to get herself ready, um, she started at a very, very good level, and she was very motivated. So um, she was ahead of some other patients that I had seen in the past. So Annie, you went through so much just to get diagnosed in the first place. You, you sort of, you have that light bulb moment. You get to Dr. Wolf. Um, obviously, uh, you, you finally had a, a course that you thought would work. When it comes to recovery, what are your memories of that? Um, how long did it take to see progress? How difficult was it? Well, I ended up having both of my hips operated on within a five-week period of time. So I really started seeing progress with my left hip, um, which was the end of January, probably about 
two to three weeks um, out. And um, Dr. Wolf can probably weigh in, but that hip was, I guess, more impaired than the right hip. And so um, at about two to three weeks, I definitely noticed um, some improvement with the uh, with physical therapy, I was able to do more. I was able to balance. The initial pain that I had been having for such a long time was gone day one of surgery. Um, so the only pain that I was in was just the post-surgical pain. With my second hip um, that was done the first week of March on my right hip, obviously we had a little bit of a setback with my left because I wasn't able to do all the things that I had finally gotten up to um, with regards to physical therapy because I had this other side. But for whatever reason, that hip responded um, even better, and I felt I felt incredible after one week and was ready to start challenging myself. And so, you know, in general, obviously, the, I assume the pain is still gone. How how different is your life now? Now that you've addressed this, and and what are your what are your goals? Are there things you're looking to get back to or to do that you couldn't do before because of the pain? Definitely. Well, I think the last time I saw Dr. Wolf um, about a month or so ago for post-op, um, I had this my hip bucket list, as I call it, which is all which was he probably thought it was crazy because it was all sorts of really random things that I wanted to do. Some of which I was told I could not do, um, such as the splits, which is okay because I couldn't do the splits prior to surgery, at least for the past. 10, 15 years, um, but I do want to be able to get back to jogging and be able to to go out dancing with my friends, um, to take my kids roller skating, just to be more active with my family. Um, I'm still babying my hips with the things I do. I um, will listen to Paris to a T um, if she says, I can do something, I do it. If she says, well, maybe you should wait, then I absolutely will not do it because I don't want to do anything to mess up my recovery at this point. So I am, I'm taking a baby steps. And I'm going to come back to you with one more question, but first I have a question for, for Dr. Wolf and then the same one for Paris, which is, you know, this whole conversation really nicely maps out um, sort of what the approach is for somebody who has hip impingement to, to the degree that we know, and again, Dr. Wolf, I'll start with you, is there anything we can do to prevent prevent this from happening in the first place? You mentioned sort of that there's still some mysteriousness around this and, and who gets it and why. Do we have any best guess on, on things that would prevent this from happening in the first place? You know, it's a, that's a, it's a really good question. I think that um, I think it's probably a multifactorial thing. And so from the standpoint of prevention, I, I think when you think at the very beginning of, of of things when we look at what we're doing with with um, youth sports these days, I think that we do have to um, pump the brakes a little bit on some of the subspecialization that happens so early, and I think that that probably pay, plays somewhat of a role um, in that. You know, we're sort of in a you know everybody's sort of focusing on one sport and doing it 365 days a year at a really early age, and so we don't really know what the downstream effects of that are, except for we do we do know to a certain degree that kids are getting more injuries. We're seeing more kids getting Tommy John surgery, for example, in their elbow when they're in high school, and, and, and that's, that's sort of a devastating thing because they're really, they've thrown their arms out before they've even, 
been been old enough to to get to where they would would want to get to and and uh when we see over uh specialization we're seeing the same the same kids doing the same things over and over and over again i think they put themselves in risk of developing probably some impingement in their hips and probably that that's one factor another factor though is being multifactorial there's going to be a lot of things that cause people to get impingement and it's not because they not necessarily because they did something wrong but once you have once you have impingement or or even if you don't I think it's smart to be prepared for the sports that you need to do so that you're so that you are able to sort of um, use good movement patterns in the sport that that your sport would require in order to protect your hip and so that um, you know you have good gluteal strength you have good Strong uh, trunk stability, you have good core strength, and uh, and and good flexibility, and in in, uh, to the extent that the the bony shape of your hips will allow. Uh, and then and then be smart about things when you're when you start having soreness, back off. And and you know I think uh, Paris has the exact uh, same philosophy I do, and and, and it's helped really a ton of patients, but certainly Annie is emblematic of that and that, you know, when, when somebody does have a hip problem, it really is going to be a little bit of trial and error, particularly after, particularly after surgery, you've got to sort of fill your way forward with it. And, um, but even before surgery, if somebody starts having a little bit of a problem, you should try this, you try that, you try the other thing, see what, see what things are going to work and, uh, and don't, and, and the, the no pain, no gain thing is the exact opposite of the approach you want to take with, with hip injuries and in general, particularly after surgery, because it's just not, it's not worth it. You're just going to make things worse generally. And so, um, I think being proactive about, uh, about being strong and flexible for the, for the sports that you, that you're, that you're playing and then, uh, being re- reactive, um, about these sort of recurrent problems that might be happening around the hip and, and, and sort of saying, all right, well, if, if there's all these things happening around this person's hip, maybe we should look at the hip itself because generally speaking, that's where the answer is going to lie. Um, and uh, so I think that's that's sort of the best approach. Um, uh, longer answer probably than you wanted, but I think that's, that's the right approach. Well, a longer answer maybe than Paris wanted. That was pretty comprehensive. Paris, do you have anything to add to that same question? <laughs> no, not really. I, I, I could not agree more. Um, and, you know, sometimes I feel like just telling patients, um, especially young kids, to take it easy and rest or don't play, it's, um, it's, a, it's a little bit challenging, you know, um, and with, with the kids or sometimes with the parents and um, just to kind of basically get them on the same page that um, it's good to take a step back and um, let things calm down and let us help you um, basically heal the tissue and see what we can do with it conservatively. That would be the big key for me sometimes. Um, And um, like Dr. Wolf mentioned earlier, um, it's not just the hip. I see kids, um, high school kids with knee, shoulder, elbow injury that is just repetitive use. Um, sometimes you get them better, you give them a set of exercises, send them, and they just go and play. And then they come back, uh, you know, six months later because uh, kids like to play and don't like to do boring exercises that are sometimes necessary um, to keep playing. Um, so that's another key part of um, basically trying to avoid injuries. 
So I want to wrap this up, Annie, by going back to you. Um, you know, you're still recovering. There's still things on your hit bucket list you want to get due and, and everything of that nature. But nonetheless, you had reached a point in your life where you did not have pain-free mobility. You you have that back. What does that mean to you? It means everything. I'm, I feel just so much better to have answers, to have my life back. Um, and I feel like there's so much more that I want to do physically um, that maybe I never really thought I ha- I'd have an interest in doing before. So just definitely try more things. and um, But, again, cautiously try more things um, as I get through the next, you know, six months to a year post-op. Um, then I'll certainly feel more comfortable even expanding the things that I allow my body to do. Well, best of luck to you on that. Uh, Dr. Wolf, Paris, Annie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.